This is a Podcast 225 production. The issues. What's going on now? What's happening in the state? The people. Carl Dabity. We've got Michael Shingleton. Taylor Moore. Jay Darden. Congressman Garrett Gray. Richard Condon. He is Ryan Clark. Sharon Weston Broom. The podcast. And we're going to talk about that. This is the Clay Young Show. Merry Christmas, everybody. Welcome to episode 186 of the Clay Young Show here on podcast 225. Com. Hopefully you are enjoying this special holiday season, getting to spend some good time with family and friends and reflecting on everything that this year has given and taken. And hopefully you're looking forward to a productive and healthy 2019. I'm glad to be with you. Clay Young here, your host and enjoying our dialogue as always. Today's show features a return guest, one of my favorites, Detective Tom Lang of the LAPD, retired. He was, as you will remember, one of the lead investigators in the O.J. Simpson murder trial. But he is here today for a different reason. Actually, it's for a different book that he wrote. And we're going to talk about that. Now, the thing is, when we talked about Evidence Dismissed, the book on O.J. Simpson, we went into great detail about everything around that case because it wasn't, I mean, there were details in the book that were new to to you guys, but let's face it, there were things uh, overall that you knew about. Well, this newest book, or this latest book, I should say, is about a story that most of you may not have heard, and some of you who may have seen it fictionalized in movies don't realize that that's not even a percent of what was really going on. The name of the book, if you're wondering, I get to the name of the book, Clay, the name of the book is Malice in Wonderland, the inside story of the police investigation of the Laurel Canyon murders. Now, Detective Lang and his partner, Detective Bob Souza, take you through this journey. So we get into it a little bit. I'm not going to give a whole lot away because I kind of think you should read the book. And it's, it, it reads, look at it this way or, or, or think about it this way. When you, when you're reading it, you are probably going to think to yourself a few times, this is like a made up story. It is impossible to believe that this really happened. And it is a story about gruesome murder, corruption in high places, people betraying their oath of office on so many levels, and the tedious work of detectives trying to get to the bottom of this multiple-layered thing. And Detective Lang and I are going to talk about that uh, as he joins us from California by way of phone in just a moment. As we sit to record episode 186, earlier this week, I was out with a group of law enforcement officers, community leaders, clergy, and just interested people here in the Baton Rouge area, and we were walking in a poorer part of uh, this community meeting people, and actually, we gave out cupcakes. So this is a part of the initiative of the Truce Program that was started out of the district attorney's office and is run by executive director and ADA, Ashla Burgess. And so Truce has been doing a lot of work and these canvases, this initial one, the way that we did it was kind of an idea I had. And I, I learned after we finished it that we have done 10 of those in just over a year. 10 visits to the community, not 10 different areas of the community because we've, we've hit some of the areas on more than one occasion. It was really great to be out there with those kids. Uh, Manners of the Heart was there. Uh, Jenny Peters with Varsity Sports was there. We gave out gloves and goodie bags and cupcakes, as I said. Patrick Bernhard, uh, who, who he and his father are really integral in what Truce is doing, got those cupcakes and the kids loved them. And it was, it was really, really good to be out there. The sheriff's office was there. The sheriff himself was out there. The chief police chief had 
another engagement that kept him from being there, but he was represented well by the men and women of law enforcement. Kelly and Jeff Leduff with open, open eye safety training and security, they weren't able to be there because they were out of the state on some business, but they contributed to some gift cards. They actually bought a bunch of them that we gave out. They did, and I did, that ADA Burgess handed out there. It was really, really nice to do it. And, you know, I think a lot of these things in the community like that don't really require money, just a little bit of time. And a lot of people who showed up, just they were out there to meet neighbors. And I think we changed this perception of the way law enforcement is viewed in inner city communities by giving a new context to the relationship between law enforcement and those communities. And what I mean by that is when, when the kids were out there and there's some hesitance when they see the officers and then when they're interacting and before you know it, you got cops and kids throwing a football around. Well, those kids are always going to remember that. And so the next time they see a police officer, their context is not just, Oh, I'm in trouble. Oh, this is, Officer so-and-so who was in my neighborhood. And I think that's a big part of it. On both sides, you got to do that work. And, I mean, we can sit around and jawbone and and talk about it for forever and ever. But until we get out and actually do something about it with action, I don't know that anything is going to change. So thanks to everyone who was out there for this. All right. Let's get to our conversation with Detective Tom Lang. We will do that next. This is Dr. Mary Catherine Rodriguez, and I'm Katie Fetzer. We're the owners and co-founders of The Wellness Studio, a mental health practice with locations here in Baton Rouge and Covington. We are also your host for The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com. Our podcast is a journey into the world of mental health. On our show, we're going to discuss some of the various forms of mental health conditions. We're also going to shed light on the various ways our listeners can get a better understanding of how the mind works and why we do what we do. So subscribe today to get The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com, iTunes, and the Talk 107 mobile app. Executone of Louisiana has been helping businesses in Baton Rouge save money on their telecommunications for over 40 years. Executone will help businesses upgrade their phones and intercom systems, save money, and never have to worry about local customer support. Doctors' offices, hospitals, schools, businesses, it doesn't matter. All kind have depended on the good people at Executone to upgrade technology and save money. I have a question for you. Do you like saving money? Sure, of course you do. Here's another one. Do you want to keep the most up-to-date phone and intercom technology while saving money. That's what it's all about. That's a no-brainer. Don't get sucked in by out-of-town companies who are not here if you need technical support. Executone has been here and they believe in the value of customer service, baby. Don't take my word for it. Give them a call. 225-295-3500. That's 295-3500. Oh, look them up. ExecutoneLA.com. Executone of Louisiana. They still here and they're going to continue to give you great service back with detective tom lang longtime law enforcement officer in los angeles a member of the los angeles police department uh, detective lang is known by very many people around the world as one of the lead investigators in the oj simpson murder trial and we will talk about that a little bit today but our primary discussion is going to be, and by the way, the, the book about the, the Simpson case, in my opinion, is one of the best reads you're ever going to get if you want to know about it. It's Evidence Dismissed, the inside story of the police investigation of the O.J. Simpson murders. And I bought the book. I encourage you to buy it as well. Uh, but we're going to talk today about Malice in Wonderland, the inside story of the police investigation of the Laurel Canyon murders. Detective Lang is with us. Tom, how are you, bud? Good, Clay. How are you doing? I am fantastic. Happy holidays to you and your family. Uh, great. Thank you. So um, first off, the book. Now, selfishly, I have to admit that Tom acknowledged me in podcast 225 in that book. Man, that was a very touching thing. Uh, thing. Thank you so much for that. Well deserved. Well deserved. So let's talk about the Wonderland murders. And this, a lot of this centers around what happened on July 1st of 1981. So let's start at the beginning about the Wonderland gang in the Laurel Canyon section of, of L.A. What was going on back then? Set the scene for us. Well, back in the early 80s, you may recall, it was a 
so-called uh, cocaine salad days in uh, Southern California, as well as a lot of other places. A lot of drugs, uh, a lot of crime as far as police activity went. It was at the time where we were having, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred murders a year in this city, which is a, was, is a lot compared to today when you, you may have uh, 300 homicides a year. So you probably had 300 or probably had 300 percent increase in the homicide rate back in 1981. And like I said, the drugs was, was at the core of a lot of that. And a lot of it was controlled by various organized crime factions. And uh, one of them uh, was led by a fellow by the name of Ed Nash, also known as Adele Nasrallah, a Palestinian who immigrated here back in the 50s and opened a little hot dog stand on Hollywood Boulevard and and uh, was very successful in business and in crime and went a long ways and, and owned several nightclubs in the Hollywood area. And he was also involved, of course, in narcotics and became one of the largest narcotics dealers in Southern California at the time. Well, we also had a lot of uh, druggies out there robbing these types of uh, uh, dealers and uh, people that were handling these uh, all of these drug sales. And the so-called Wonderland Gang was one of this one of these groups. Now, associated with them was a porn uh, porn act, porn actor of the time, by the name of John Holmes, a very well-known porn actor of the time. Uh, Holmes had a drug habit, and uh, he would get his drugs from the Wonderland gang. And they were, of course, involved in a lot of other things, like, as I said, in ripping off dealers, uh, robbery. Um, the one one of the uh, Wonderland gang, Ron Launius, was uh, was involved with uh, as, a, as a killer for hire. He's probably uh, been involved in five or six murders for hire. So these are some bad dudes, and... They got the uh, idea once through John Holmes, who also knew Ed Nash, uh, that, uh, you know, maybe they should uh, get a shot at Nash because he had a lot of money around, had a lot of drugs, and was very well known, and so they decided to rip him off. Now, this was John Holmes' idea, and so the plan was set that the Wonderland gang would uh, go on into uh, Nash's studio city home early one morning, the rear slider would be left open in one of the bedrooms by John Holmes, who would visit him the night before. Holmes would leave, and then early the next morning, the Wonderland gang would move in, and they'd rip Nash off. Well, this, this happened, and uh, the following morning, uh, they entered, and uh, one thing led to another, and they slapped Nash around and slapped his bodyguard around, and there was an accidental shooting, and the bodyguard got grazed, and and they humiliated Nash. He had him on his knees, and they had to stuck a gun down his throat and threatened him this and that and tied everybody up, and uh, they, they ripped him off for the tune of about 100000 in cash and, and lots and lots of uh, narcotics, weapons, all sorts of personal things. And then they humiliated him, and they took off. And they went back to the Wonderland location, which is a couple miles away as the crow flies. Well, Nash, being who he was and being involved with what he was, certainly didn't call the cops and report the robbery. He had other ways of getting around that. Uh, one of those things that he determined that down the road within two days was that Holmes was involved. So he uh, had Holmes picked up and forcibly got a confession from Holmes that he, in fact, was the one who set up the robbery, and uh, he uh, threatened Holmes' family and said this, that, and the other was going to happen unless Holmes gave up the people who robbed him. Well, hang on. Before well, before, before you go on to there, because I wanted to, why did he assume that John Holmes was the person behind the robbery? Things just didn't add up as far as Holmes' timing. Now, Nash may have been a bad guy, but he was not a dummy. He was very smart in order to figure that out. He was there just before and there just after, in fact, this happened. He came by the next morning to try to cover for himself a little bit. And it just it just didn't ring right with, with, with Nash. Something Holmes is a very untrustworthy person his entire life. He spoke out of both sides of his mouth. He was not to be trusted. And Nash, of course, figured, well, he thinks it might be him. Even if it's not, who cares? We'll beat on him anyway. 
and he'll come around, which he did. And so it's just a suspicion Nash had, and uh, you don't become an organized crime kingpin by not being suspicious of other people who are around you all the time. This is people rat, rat out these folks all the time and roll over on them. So it wasn't hard for Nash to, to figure this out because he was the only one there who who he just who felt that uh, he was there just a little too often, and he, you get a feeling for certain people that you don't trust. And again, even if it wasn't Holmes, he felt that what the hell will beat on him anyway, uh, just in case it was. And of course, Holmes uh, caved right away. So it wasn't hard for Nash to figure that out. Now, uh, Holmes gave up these folks and said uh, that they lived just a couple miles away, and he named them and, and said, this is what happens. Anyway, Holmes, or Nash was livid. He was just out of his mind because they would do this and, and humiliate him and, uh, and this type of thing. So he uh, set this thing up with Holmes. He said, this is what you're going to do. Uh, about 4 a.m., whatever the time was, uh, one day hence, uh, there's going to be a tap on the door, and Holmes would be there, and he's going to let who's ever there in, and they're going to take care of business. Well, this happened, and uh, about 4 a.m., a couple of days later, is the tap on the door, and uh, Holmes had been there the night before, and he. Uh, th- there's a lot of details, though, in between here that's laid out in the book that I'm not going to bore you with at this point it's not boring actually it's just kind of neat what well, led up to this what i was going to say but, is actually a lot of it is very very good and unlike the simpson case that most people remember the laurel canyon murders and what went on there people don't know so i kind of want to dig through this without giving too much away because yeah, you know okay. people ought to do people ought to go buy the book and, and get yeah. the, get the full story but i want to go yeah. back a little bit uh, there were people who said they saw Holmes w- walking around wearing some of Nash's things. Could you talk about that a little bit? Uh, wearing some of Nash's things. So what I did, what I did some reading about, because I, I went and did some reading about this as well, because I was fascinated uh, with it, and I saw there were there were reports of people saying that um, that Holmes was reported walking around Hollywood wearing one of Nash's rings. I don't remember anything like okay, that. Okay. Again, again, as I point out in the preface here, if somebody reads this preface in the book, they will find out that there's been a lot of stories on this case. Right. A lot of them are made up. A lot of them are just nonsense. There's been three movies made about this case that's all nonsense. There have been documentaries. People just fill in the blanks as they, as they go along on this case. None of this stuff is true. That's one of the main reasons we wrote this all these years later. Right. What really happened. Now, I don't know anything about a ring or anything Good. like that. Good. There you we go. know that certain things were taken during the robbery. Some of them had to do with weapons, and those were recovered. The book also talks about the corruption that went on and some of what happened with judges and, and, and people around this case. Talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah, there's, there was corruption. Uh, Nash had... Uh, we, did a series of search warrant services at his home. There was a shooting uh, at the first one where no one was really hit. They opened up on us when we went in with with a search warrant. Nobody was hit, and there was all sorts of drugs recovered. Uh, Greg Diles was a bodyguard who went to prison for shooting at the officers on the one side of the house as they came in. Uh, Nash was arrested on that time and three other two other times where drugs were obtained. Weapons were, and all these charges were filed together, wherein he was finally ended up in court, where he was charged with all of these crimes, uh, and he received eight years in prison. Uh, But somehow, after a period of time, the sentencing judge uh, developed a little cocaine problem himself, and he had Nash back in court and reduced his sentence and gave him time served, and he got out. Later on, we find out that the particular magistrate had been paid off uh-huh. to the tune of $50,000 by Nash's people. Uh, in the murder trials, there was one of the jurors who was bought off. Her brother was murdered because money wasn't paid in a timely fashion to the right people. Her family went into uh, protective uh, custody for a while in, in the witness protection program. There were other witnesses who were bought off. There was a couple of dirty cops involved here that came to us. 
and offered us uh, anything we wanted. If we would kind of forget about this, because Nash was really a good guy. Nash himself came to us and offered us a lot of money to drop the case. So there was attempted bribery. There's uh, corruption as a federal agent who was working for Nash, who uh, went behind uh, everybody's back and then went to our chief of police and said we were in bed with organized crime causing us to, to a special investigation to uh, be done on us. Our own people were following us around because of this dirty federal agent said we were in bed with organized crime. The only reason that he did that was to derail the investigation because all of this stuff would have been discoverable in any subsequent trial. So Nash had set all of these different things up, all of these bribes and, and all of this intimidation, and that's how organized crime works in a lot of ways. So this went on for years and years, and some 20 years, uh, until I retired. And after I retired, it, it even continued until Nash was finally indicted in 1999. So there's a lot of things that went on other than just a murder investigation. And that's, primary, that's the primary reason we wrote the book, not just to uh, highlight the murders and the brutality of these murders. And they were done with pipes. I mean, they were very brutal. Yeah. They were message killings. Yeah. But there was a lot more involved here when we got too close to these organized crime figures. How does how you in the book talks about some of the corruption and, and you just referenced it there, even with members of law enforcement. How does someone like Nash get people on the other side of the law on his payroll? Is it just about the money? What What, what is that? What did you talk about what you found about that? Well, it's about other things. It's about uh, someone, you know, when you, uh, when you raise your arm to enforce the law and this, that, and the other, it's, some people don't take that real seriously. Uh, back when, this was a pretty common thing uh, with a lot of people. Uh, Nash owned several nightclubs. I mean, there were seven or eight nightclubs, and uh, if you were the right kind of cop, he let you in there, and it was free drinks, free food, uh, whatever else, uh, in, with, with a wink and a nod, and uh, if, if he, you, you turn, your, turn the other way if somebody was making a hand-to-hand sale because he was dealing drugs in all of his, all of his nightclubs. Uh, now and again, you, uh, you, you give an envelope to somebody and say, Merry Christmas, hope all is well, and that particular individual may be a cop, he may be very weak, and he may not be uh, take his oath to office very seriously. And if you take, if you start, they usually start small like that, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it gets bigger to the extent that, uh, in this particular case, in one instance, a retired intelligence cop came to me in the office with his retired ID tag on into my office, and said that you know Ed is really not a bad guy. And we really barking up the wrong tree, and you you got to take a serious look at this thing. And he says, you know, I, I'll help you any way that you want. He says, any way, anything that you want. You know, they don't come out and flat ass say that. Hey, listen, uh, we want to give you some money to go away, but they intimate all of these types of things. And this this is what becomes easy for these guys who are weak. Uh, and they want the money, they're greedy, and they couldn't care less about their oath. And they, and they look at this thing and say, you know, all the people he killed, they're all dirtbags. I mean, they're all dopers. They all rob people. They're all bad people anyway. And this is where this thing comes from. They don't take their oath very seriously, obviously. When, you, when this is going on and, and it takes so long to go through, you just referenced that, that and the layers of people from judges to you know, people in law enforcement and all of this happening, the book, kind of like in Evidence Dismissed, lays out in, in, in really specific format all that you have to do when you're trying to solve a murder. It isn't just good enough for you to believe that Nash and his people are behind this. You've got to go about the business of proving it. Just kind of talk about your mindset as a detective when you have to string all of these points together so that it's clear who you believe is responsible for a murder or in the, in this case, these murders. Well, you can believe someone is responsible for something. Uh, uh, common sense will tell you that two and two is four, but you have to corroborate it and you have to prove it. 
And all along on these types of cases, you're working with a district attorney's office. Any high-profile case, you want to get them on board, the sooner the better, especially in, in an organized crime uh, case like this. But you build a case, and you build uh, witnesses over a period of time. Like I alluded to, this is some 20 years. But when you have your own people, supposedly, working against you, it frustrates the entire investigation and that was the problem here especially when you don't know it when you are trying to do your job and in other words you have an organized crime killing who are you going to talk to you're going to talk to people in organized crime some of them aren't real good people so in this particular case this dirty federal agent unbeknownst to us said you know Lang and Sousa are in bed with these people and you can't trust them and so they're following us, and we have an organized crime figure that we want to get information from. So it's not like on television where you push his door in and then knock him around a little bit and force him to say something. It's, it's a, hey, I'll meet you in public at a restaurant for dinner. So we're eating with this guy in a very well-known restaurant in Hollywood called Musso and Frank's, and he's an, a known organized crime figure, and we're being surveilled by our own people. Where there's smoke, there's fire. We don't know that any of this is going on. So unfortunately, this will frustrate us down the line. In the end, they find out, hey, this is all nonsense because the federal agent who set it up is dirty himself. He ends up blowing his brains out. You know, this is a, you don't know that these things are going on. And all we're trying to do is corroborate the evidence that we have. But when these things happen, it frustrates the investigation, and therefore things are delayed for all of these years because you don't know who's on the right side and who's on the wrong side. You don't know who's following you. Uh, nobody's giving you a straight line. Uh, you've got a federal agent who's rapping on you on one side. You've got a corrupt judge on the other. You've got cops in between you can't trust. So all of this comes together, and that's why some of these things take as long as they take. But what you try to do is, is with the physical evidence, you try to cooperate. You try to cooperate people's memories and try to get witnesses. But like I, I said in the book, you know, uh, during one of the trials where a juror had been actually bought off and it hung 11 to 1 for guilt, you know, we had to have something to say. The DA had to have something to say in order to explain all of these witnesses who are really bad people. We don't have any nuns out there. Uh, we don't have any uh, uh, electrical engineers as uh, witnesses. We have all bad people. So we had to come up with a saying, and I came up with this, this thing that I have in the book. It says, when a crime occurs in hell, you don't have angels as witnesses. Now, that pretty That's much right. says the whole story right there. And that was our problem for 20 years. You know, and it's interesting because you talked about being surveilled by fellow you know, law enforcement officers. I mean, when you, when you talk about when you come to the realization that that's going on, that your own guys are working against you as you try to solve these murders. Well, I was off for a few days, one night at home on vacation, and I got a call from Bob Susan, my partner at the time. It was about 9 o'clock at night, and he had been out doing an interview on the case, on another case, and went in back into the office where we had all of our files that we kept locked up in cabinets. And this was probably about 7.30 one night, and he had called me, you know, later, like I said, a couple hours later. But he walked in, and he couldn't find a certain murder book. We had several on this case. Now, this is a few years, two years, about two years after it began. And he couldn't find the, uh, the file. And so our captain at the time happened to be in his office. He was always in there late, working in the evening. So Bob went back and uh, went in, and the uh, captain's name, Bill Cobb, he says, uh, Captain, I'm looking around for the murder book on the Wonderland case, and I can't find it. He says, well, Bob, i got to talk to you. Come on in and, and have a seat. So Bob says, what's up? He says, well, and he tells him about this internal investigation. You guys have been under investigation by a special uh, out of the chief's office, uh, a federal agent has uh, come to the department and uh, said that you fellows are involved with covering up this case. Uh, you're involved with uh, the organized crime figures. Your brother, 
is the godfather, believes to be the godfather of one of Ed Nash's uh, children. Uh, and we have confiscated all the murder books while the investigation goes on, and you're not to be involved in this anymore, and blah, blah, this, and blah, blah, that, and just goes on and on and on. And Bob's sitting there with his mouth open. He doesn't know what's going. He can't believe all this. <laughs> well, when it's done, he walks away shaking his head, and he's just, he went, went to a bar, and he's drinking, and he calls me, and he tells me this at home. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. My stomach was churning. We're under investigation. We've been relieved of this, uh, this thing uh, because we've been uh, told that uh, our department has been told by an organized crime stooge that uh, we were dirty. Uh, the feds uh, said we were dirty, and so they're going to investigate all of this stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what are we going to do? Do I have to get a lawyer? You know, what am I going to tell my wife? What about this? What about that? So this goes on for, for months. And there's an investigation. In the end, of course, they find out it's all made up. It's all made up by a dirty federal agent who himself was dirty. And, but nothing happens. This just lies flat. Now, this is all discoverable in a court of law. If we were to go to court and we were to file on somebody, all of this stuff could have come out. And would this put a doubt in someone's mind on a jury that just didn't like cops? Right. Very possibly. Meanwhile, Nash is out there still buying people off. And when that didn't work, it comes to us. And when that didn't work, they go to this tactic. So it's one step after another. Uh, and we, we just beside ourselves. So this thing lay dormant for a few years until uh, one thing led to another, and a couple of people had died. And uh, the agent, you know, uh, resigned, basically, in lieu of, went to work for security for another organized crime figure in, in Las Vegas. And he, the same federal agent went to work for Ed Nash when he retired. Yeah. The dirty one who laid us out. So this went on and on and on and on, and there were several trials involved. Like I said, Nash was kicked out of the dope cases by this one corrupt judge. Uh, another judge could have recused a particular young juror who wouldn't deliberate with the others who wanted to convict Nash and Niles on the murders, hung it up 11 to 1 for guilt, and this person, the juror, had been bought off, and her family threatened and her brother murdered because money wasn't paid to the right people, and on and on and on. So this is the way it went on for 20 years. But he finally fell to a RICO indictment in 1999. There were 15 charges on that RICO indictment. One of them, now he couldn't be charged for the murders because it would be double jeopardy. So instead of the feds, instead of charging him with murder, charged him with um uh, planning and uh, aiding and abetting basically had to do with aiding and abetting the murders. So it was actually a, an offshoot of a murder charge because they couldn't charge him directly with the murders. So he was found guilty of all of those charges. In the meantime, he's, his lawyer says, well, he's got some physical problems. Sentencing day comes around for these, for all these charges, 15 federal charges, uh, Rico indictment, one of them having to do with aiding and abetting and conspiracy to commit the murders. So he goes into into uh, the federal courts in Los Angeles. Now, here, get the date on this one. September 10th, 2001. Hmm. Okay? Hmm. The day before 9-11. Right. He goes in, and he cops out to everything. He cops to everything. They, they, he gets 36 months. The next morning is 9-11. There's, a, there's an L.A. Times article about this, and you never hear another word about it. He goes to prison. He's there for about six or eight months, and he gets an early out. So all of these charges, and there were so many federal charges involved, uh, narcotics charges, arson for hire charges, and, of course, the uh, aiding and abetting and the murders and all this other stuff, and he's out running around back to doing what he did uh, once he gets out of prison. So this thing just just went away uh, after that. And, of course, the uh, federal agent commits suicide later on. And Nash, uh, of course, you know, a lot of these people still aren't around. But this went on, like I said, for, for 20 years. And it wasn't uh, handled. It was not any kind of a textbook case that I've ever heard of, certainly. 
You referenced the the atmosphere in Los Angeles. Talked about the the cocaine salad era, but there was there was so much going on there during that time that with with all of the serial killer nonsense that was going on. Right. It described to us the the atmosphere and the mood in the Los Angeles area in the early eighties when all this is taking place. Well, in the early eighties, this is just one one of these cases. There were. From 1969, uh, with the uh, the Manson killings, right into the uh, early 80s, there were some 20 different serial killers in Los Angeles, uh, in, involving dozens of suspects and, and, and essentially hundreds of victims. So our unit was also involved in all of these cases. We had one case where there was an arson for murder and, and a gang killing. 25 people lost their lives. We had that case at the same time. The Little Canyon thing. We, there were a couple of other high-profile celebrity cases, and then all of these serial killing cases came down. We were having 60, 70 murders the, the unit was handling a year, and there's like 10 or 12 guys in this unit. And it was just at that particular time in L.A., it was just a lot of crime, uh, a lot of homicides. Uh, we went into the year, I think, 19. Uh, some of the stuff lasted. The serial killing, some of these serial killing cases went on for years. The Skid Row Stabber case went on for nearly 20 years, 20, 30 years. Uh, and that just was resolved a couple of years ago, and that was back in the late 70s. So we had all of these things hanging on, and, uh, of course, there's no statute of limitations on murders, so we still were handling all of these other cases at the same time. So it was a very busy, busy time in L.A., uh, and it just it was hard to get anything done. So things just went on for years and years and years. And then right in the middle of all these other things, of course, this thing happened. This Laurel Canyon murders uh, went down. And involved with it, of course, was all this uh, extraneous nonsense with all this organized crime and and people looking the other way and everything else. Uh, so it was a hell of a time. And, you know, this, and, and folks, I, the thing about reading this book is, you know, and I kind of get this from your style is you're meticulous about those details. But I think the perspective of someone who's not in law enforcement reading them, it, it'll make sense to you. There's not so much inside baseball language with it that the, the reader can't follow along. And the same was true in the in the Simpson book. So I encourage you, you can get the book on Amazon. It's a great read. It's a chance to kind of go along. And I'm, I'm more of a fan of the way books lay out details of crimes and drama than I often am on television, Tom, because it seems like televisions, off, television shows often take shortcuts. Would you agree oh, with yeah. that? Yeah, oh yeah, no question. Uh, it's, it's for entertainment. And this, uh, like this, these books that I write, they're not strictly for entertainment. It, right. It's for education. It's for finding out what really happened. And like this, this uh, Wonderland book, you got three movies out about John Holmes. Uh, he was instrumental in the murders to some extent, but there's a whole lot more that went on here that people aren't aware of, and it's just that entertainment to some folks. And, and Hollywood is, you know, they'll take the shortcut here. They'll, uh, they'll just throw in and fill in the blanks. If it's not exciting enough, then it'll make something up. That's always been the problem. Well, again, you can get the book on Amazon. It is a great read. It is, again, if you missed it in the open, it's Malice in Wonderland, the inside story of the police investigation of the Laurel Canyon murders. And when you go through the acknowledgments in there, it makes a reference to a guy that I like who lives in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So that's, there's that. So, so, so Tom, uh, next year we referenced this in the open. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this today because I have a feeling we're going to recap a lot of what we did and maybe even sell some more of those other books in the next year. But we're moving up on 25 years of an anniversary to the, the, the Simpson case, the murders, and everything that, that happened with that starting this summer. First question I have to ask is, man, can you believe it's been 25 years? Yeah, uh, time flies means we're all getting a little older, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these kids today uh, weren't even uh, they're on the job today as police officers weren't even born back then. And you know, I and I I was reading that there is going to be a movie uh, about this about this these murders again. Do, are you do you know anything about that? 
Well, I've heard that, and there's some there, people are always looking for angles. You know, they want this, they want that. There's got to be an angle to everything, and everything has to be new. Uh, bottom line is, there is nothing that is unknown about this the Simpson case. We put it all in the book 20 years ago. Yep. I wrote a postscript in that book in the fourth edition, which came out two years ago. Mm-hmm. Where I, I updated all of this stuff. So there's a new version to Evidence Dismissed that came out a couple of years ago. But there's nothing new here, and they, and they want these different angles, and I get calls all the time. What about this? What about that? I said, it's all in the book. It's, it's Nothing has changed today. One iota. It's it's all the same. Uh, if you, That's the problem with dealing with a lot of these things, and I'm getting to the point now where I really don't like to do a lot of these documentaries because they're all nonsense. They try to make stuff up, and the uh, last few that I've done I'm not happy with, uh, because now we've got even people like Alan Dershowitz, who's trying to rebrand himself as yeah. some kind of a libertarian now, <laughs> says that uh, my partner planted blood evidence, which he did not. There's no evidence of that. He would not do that. This guy owes Phil Van Adder's family an apology. He owes the LAPD an apology. This is just a straight lie. Why he is saying these things, I have no idea. He's, he's trying to put the... The onus back on the LAPD, uh, you know, if, if, they, if we can't show that they did something, then we'll just say they, they planted evidence. Well, they didn't, and there's no evidence of that. There's no reason for them to do that to begin with. That was what infuriates me. So when you do a, you do a documentary on these things, they can edit it any way they want. And uh, that's why I really have a big problem doing those types of things uh, today because you're not going to hear the truth. Well, and it's interesting because when when you go through the book, it, it starts off with the atmosphere there. But when you, when you learn, for instance, how many officers were on the scene uh, and even before Furman got there, because Furman was a big part of this, and, and I'm no Furman fan, but, you know, there was more than a dozen officers there before he got there. And then the, the claim about blood being planted when blood was noticed before Simpson had even given you blood, you know, before, yeah, before he, he was in Chicago, he was in Chicago. <laughs> so before he even gets back from Chicago, I mean, he, he was in Chicago when you found blood. So there was no way for you yeah. to plant his blood. You didn't have his blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a simple little point. People, see, people 25 years later, they still ask that and they don't accept that. I, I just, I, I, I don't get it. I never got it. Of course, Furman was his own worst enemy. Yeah. Uh, that, that's another story in itself because of his ego uh, and, his, and his, his arrogance, his racism, and anything else you can think of. Right. Once he got on the stand and pled the fifth, the case was essentially over it, anyway. That's right. That's right. And there were, you know, so many things about the, the, the way... Um, the way the blood was dealt with, and you talk in the book about Dennis Fung and the way that his team went about handling evidence. But the, the other part of it was, and this is one of the things, and we talked about it in, in, in the podcast we did on this, was the way the prosecution handled this, because you talked in the book about this guy who said he saw O.J. stuffing something into a garbage can at the airport, okay. and the prosecution never, they never interviewed the guy, Correct. Well, we interviewed him. We had him set up. He called after the the uh, trial had begun. What this was, uh, this this fellow was at the airport 11 o'clock at night about picking up his, his wife who worked at American Airlines, and he's sitting in a small, low-prile car, an MG, when he sees Simpson roll up in a, in a limousine the night of the murders. And the red cap comes out, and they take out Simpson's baggage, his golf clubs and everything else, this guy turns around, looks a little behind him into the into the aisle, looking to see if his wife is there because she's running late. And as he turns back around, the red cap has gone inside, and Simpson is at one of two trash cans on the left side of the entrance. This trash can is like 40 inches high. It's open on four sides. It's got a flat top, uh-huh, uh-huh. and there's a small travel bag on it, and he's taking items out of the travel bag and shoving them into the trash can. When he's through doing that, he zips up the little bag, picks it up, and walks into the airport. So this, the bodies had not even been discovered at this point. He doesn't know anything is going on. So the next morning, he hears about the murders, and that Simpson may be a suspect. 
And, uh, you know, he's back in Chicago at the time, and he was probably here during the time of the murders. So he calls the defense team. Well, the defense team is just getting their, their act together, and they know better, and they say, yeah, we'll get back to you. Well, they never do. They don't want this guy as a witness. Because what would Simpson be putting into that trash container right. an hour after the murders occurred? I right. mean, is it a knife? Is it shoes? What, what is it? So the, this goes on for several months until we're in the middle of trial, and he calls me in the office one day during a break, and he tells me this story. And he says, I really feel bad now because I, I thought I called up and I told the, the defense at the time that I can, I can be a witness for you because I know Simpson was at the airport right around the time of the murders. Well, the times of the murders had been inaccurately reported by Nicole's mother, who was in shock when she was interviewed when she got ambushed by the media and found out that her daughter had died. I just talked to her on the phone. The media got onto it. She said, oh, I just talked to her last night about 10.30 in the night. Well, phone records show that was at 9.37 that she talked to him. So he had the, the wrong information. So defense didn't want anything to do with him. Right. But this was now a prosecution witness. So we interviewed him. I had him meet us back there at the airport. We took photographs. We had him do walk through everything that happened put this all in a package and it went to Marsha and I said, here it is. Here's people to this day want to know where the murder weapon is, where the bloody clothes might be, where the shoes might be. How about this? To this day, we have not seen that little half moon shaped travel bag because he dumped it somewhere. And the, the background on the trash was that uh, there were two common dumps that they used, landfills that they used for trash from LAX, from the airport. There were, there were three collections a day, and this was like eight months prior. So what are the chances of finding trash from eight months prior, two different, two right. separate landfills, which one we didn't know anyway. So there's no way to recover this stuff, but this was a good, reliable witness. Why would you not put that person on? And, you know, it's there's so many interesting tidbits, and I want to go back to the blood and which which some of this, when you read it, it frustrates you when you when you read in context details that you never got from watching news media is that right. he, he admitted that he parked his Bronco that way. He admitted yep. that he had been bleeding. All right. So it was his blood that was in the Bronco. No, no. It's ridiculous to say it was planted in there when he admits that he was bleeding in that in that truck. Um, right. And then, you know, going back to that. And so that part taints the way people view this now when they say these things. And for again, back to Furman. Furman wasn't the first guy there. He didn't find the bodies. Um, you know, there were other officers. Why do you, well, I guess it's a, it's a, I was going to ask, why do you think people don't put that out? It's a ridiculous question. It's because they want to keep this yarn spinning, yeah. you know, but, but, and, and then as you're going through the trial, just watching this from where you are, you are sitting in the courtroom and you see things being represent misrepresented. And you talk about in the book being pissed at some of what you were seeing. But just for people who hadn't read it yet, talk about that when you're sitting there and listening to these stories thrown out about what what cops did then. Well, we we're getting told that, that we lied. Um, uh, and that doesn't work. We'll throw in the racism thing. And if that doesn't work, the, the planning of evidence thing. Of course, they kept bringing in the Rodney King uh, incident. Uh, you know, I spent eight and a half days on the stand with Johnny Cochran. And, you know, when he's asking me about things that weren't relative to the investigation, uh, the, the jury would be writing on their pads and be writing like crazy. And that's when I knew this thing was over. Because when I was on direct with Marcia, they would just be glaring at me. In eight and a half days, you, you, you figured out that, hey, you know, they're not on our side. They were buying into Cochran's arguments about a racist LAPD, a, plan, a planning of evidence, and if you didn't believe this, you can believe that. If the glove doesn't fit, the whole glove uh, nonsense, and on and on and on. And you sit there, and you can't become emotionally involved. That's what Cochran was trying to do to me while I was on the stand, to get me pissed off. So I'd, I'd go off on him. Uh, and I just not that type. This is what they want to do. Find out how unstable these cops are. You can't trust them. You never could. They're all they're all plant evidence. They all, as Dershowitz said, they're taught to lie in the police academy. 
and you listen to all this BS, and that tells you something. That tells you you got a pretty damn good case because they're afraid of it. When it all comes down to it, it's about the evidence. You know, and it, 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 when you look at the evidence here, there's no denying who was involved in this case. In any murder investigation, any homicide cop worth his salt is going to look for exculpatory evidence. You're always going to look for something that doesn't fit. And I'll tell you that 95% of the time you're going to find that because it's true right. in any homicide investigation. This is a 5%er. There's absolutely no evidence of a substantive nature in this case that's exculpatory. Every little thing points in one direction and one direction only. Now, if you want to forget all that and say, well, they framed it, why would we frame them? Right. Did we frame the other 300 murder investigations we handled? Why would we do this? It makes no sense. Well, and you know, there was there was actually one thing I saw in one of those documentaries that, that d- didn't really go into detail, like this book. And Like I said, I learned more from reading the book than watching any of that. But I will tell you, Marsha Clark did say something in one of the documentaries that I found to be very true. She said, in order to believe that the LAPD and specifically Furman framed Simpson, he would have to know that Simpson didn't have an alibi. And and I think that's a fair point. But when you go back to the details of this and what happened, I mean, you lay out in the book how there was a bowl of Haagen-Dazs that, that Nicole had left, I think, on the bottom step. She went to the door. She knew uh, who, the, who the person was at the door, apparently. It was late at night. Maybe she was expecting uh, uh, Ron Goldman to bring those glasses that her mother had left at the Mezzaluna. And, and there's, yeah. there's so many things about the atmosphere. And at the crime scene, the only other DNA there is Simpson outside of the two victims and the only shoe print there that's left trailing away from the murders were those Bruno Maglias that he said he didn't wear, but he got caught in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, the other, the other case, the civil case, he got caught lying because he said he, he, you know, he didn't own those ugly shoes, but yeah, yeah, he did own those shoes. Well, we even put those shoes on him before that information came out. That's something else that Marsha didn't, didn't use. Nicole's sister, Dominique, who's very conscious, very fashion conscious, knew that Simpson had Bruno Mollies, put those Bruno Mollies on him the Easter before the murders, which is only a few weeks before the murders occurred in April. Uh, the Easter, a- April, it was in Easter. A- Easter was in April, I mean. Yeah. This is like six or eight weeks before uh, the murders. Dominique told me in an interview that he was wearing Bruno Mollies because she's that conscious, a very expensive shoe, and she knew what they looked like, and she picked them out of a lineup. She picked the shoes out of a lineup that I actually made for her. So we already had that information. The other thing that shows us one person, one murder weapon at the scene, and I know the movie that you're alluding to is coming out saying that the the person who put this thing together, I guess it was an old employee of uh, Simpsons, is going to say that, Simpson did commit the murders, only I can prove that there was someone else there. Well, there was not. And the proof that there was not, also at the crime scene, on the sole of the left boot of Ron Goldman, there was a blood cast-off. It's in the form of cast-off, something that you look at at a crime scene. Cast-off is something that the blood we cast off from a murder weapon as the murder weapon is, is being used and someone might be stabbed. Well, there was this... This globule of blood on the uh, on the sole of Simpson's boot, and we had it analyzed, and it was a combination of blood from both victims. That tells you that there's one murder weapon. Right. Because the cast-off from that single weapon had the blood of both victims on it. So that corroborates the single footwear impression theory with the Bruno Mali. They were superimposed over one another. There's no other footwear impressions. There's no other blood combinations. There's absolutely nothing at that crime scene that tells you there was a second suspect. In the trial, they tried to tell us, well, there was. how about this blood stain here? So they showed some blood stain that uh, Henry Lee had supposedly found. And he said, well, this could be the blood uh, that you didn't pick up of someone else and, and uh, this, this type of thing. So we went back to the crime scene. And what he pointed out in the photograph is actually a three-dimensional trowel mark. Ah. It's nothing to do with nothing. 
And so anything to, to screw this up and throw it at the jury and the media. You see, here, here the, the defense not only had the jury in the palm of their hand, they had the media. There should never have been cameras in the courtroom. You videotape this all you want, but that affects testimony. Yep. Cameras in the fort courtroom affects testimony of witnesses and allows not just the, the defense, but also prosecution plays towards the cameras. That's nonsense. And the other thing was there was no gag order. Why would you allow defense teams to go out three times a day and spin evidence up one side and down the other and, and attack witnesses before they even get on the jury, on the, on the uh, stand in front of the jury? And they do this in front of the media. If there were a gag order, they would not have been allowed to throw out evidence and attack it before it even been presented. There should have been a gag order, and there should have never been video cameras in that courtroom. It's interesting that that since then, maybe the most fascinating slash uh, disgusting thing I've seen was, I guess about five months ago, Fox Network released that interview that Simpson did with Judith Regan uh, on the on the the if I did it, the confession, if he had done it, how he would have done it. Man, I was sitting there and watching that thinking this guy is confessing to these murders. Because he's calling out details like, you know, it, I, I didn't understand the logic of him doing that back then, but I'm glad I watched that. Did you watch that and what did you think of it? No, I've seen these things, you know, and it's, it's, I'd never watched that. I've heard it, I've heard the stories, it's all nonsense. Uh, you know, in any murder case, we can look at all this crap, and when all else fails, go to the evidence. The evidence only points in one direction on right. this case. Always has. Nothing has changed. All this nonsense about planning of blood because there should have been HCCs in that blood vial. They, they never measure that type of blood. There was never HCCs in there, and that was the testimony. And you get people still saying, well, because there was less than HCCs, they used that amount to plant blood at the scene. And because inside side of sock B, it touched inside side sock C, and because it's damp, it means that there was no, that nobody was wearing the sock at the time and the blood was planted. That's nonsense. If you throw a sock down and it's wet, it's wet. B is going right. to touch C, and it's, right. going to, it's going to transfer the dampness of the blood to that, that part of the sock. It's all laid out in the book. But, but listen, Tom, but Tom, I'll go back to what I said earlier. Y'all didn't have his blood. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> when, when, when people notice the blood, he's in Chicago. Y'all didn't even have yeah. his blood yet. So it, it yeah. just, it's impossible for you to have done that before you even had yeah. the man's blood. All of these arguments are a waste of time. They're all ridiculous because, like you said, it's as simple as that. But to this day, 25 years later, they won't accept that. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> they just don't. It's unbelievable. I mean, that I just remembered laughing out loud thinking about that. It's like, well, how the hell could they have planted blood they didn't have? Yeah. And, 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 and you know, with, with the interrogation... Uh, he agreed to that interrogation. And in the book, you talk about how you just wanted him to talk. And, and, yeah. and, and you let him talk and let him ramble and let him believe that he was in control of that interview. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, actually, it wasn't an interrogation. It's an interview, and there's a distinction between the two. Okay. Uh, an interrogation, you know, might be good cop, bad cop, be in a beat your hand on the table and do some yelling and, and try to intimidate someone. You don't do that with a former professional football player who also happens to be a sociopath that could rip your head off in two seconds. <laughs> that doesn't work. And besides, even if it did work, he could invoke. He invokes, he walks out, you lose him, you get nothing. If you keep him there and do an interview and you low-key it, uh, you're trying to get inconsistency in his statements. And I break down that interview in the book, and I tell all of these inconsistent statements, I break them down and tell how they should have been used against him in court. Like, how did you cut your finger? we got three different versions of how he cut his finger That's in right. that interview. That's right. All these things are broken down. That was good evidence that should have been used. Marsha never used it. It was about LAPD on, on trial, largely because of Rodney King and the riots, and she knew it. So she was not, never going to show that this jury or the media or anything else that she was in bed with the cops. 
I had a harder time, Clay, on direct with Marcia than I had on cross with Johnny because I knew where he was coming from. I never knew where Marcia was coming from. It's like I was on trial. And that is so fascinating just because I know that you, you went through a period there where your relationship with her was really damaged. Your Yours and Phil's relationship with her yeah. was was really damaged because of the way that they went about this and how they allowed the LAPD to just get thrown off a building every time y'all were in court. Well, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, it was her plan all along. Uh, again, why she took this tactic, she was not going to appear close to the LAPD. She was trying to buy this. Again, a lot of this was because of cameras in the courtroom. They are playing both the prosecution and the defense, playing directly to those cameras, directly to the media, and the jury just happened to be sitting there. I mean, they owned the jury. They owned the jury, uh, and so this was bound to happen. You know, I like Judge. I've I've seen Lance Edo a few times since. In fact, I gave him my book. I saw him at a funeral, and he (laughs) wanted the book, and I I signed a book here for him, the uh, Wonderland book. And he was very appreciative. He is why I like him. I really do. But... I question his decision to have cameras in the courtroom, and I question the fact that there was no gag order. I, to this day, I can't believe it. It would have prevented all of this nonsense. It's unbelievable. I'm telling you, folks, these are two great books. They make great Christmas gifts. You can go on Amazon right now and order it and have it there before Christmas Eve. If you really want to know what happened, and listen, I'm just, I'm shooting you straight. Just, there are so many other details because Tom goes through great detail in that book to explain everything that happened before the court case and then what he was seeing in the courtroom but the the blood has always been one of the biggest issues that people have brought up in this case I mean there have been a lot of things people have talked about the glove people have talked about Furman but when it goes back to the blood just remember they didn't have his freaking blood until he got back from Chicago Okay, so they couldn't yes. have planted the blood before he, you know, he if they didn't have it. And so I, and I encourage you to get the book. But anyway, Tom, Merry Christmas to you and your family and those Thanks, lovely grandkids, bud. Okay, Merry Christmas to you, Clay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Promote your business or organization on Podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. This is Jeff Leduff, retired chief of police for the city of Baton Rouge. I'm Kelly Leduff, co-owner of Open Eyes Safety Training and Consulting. Open Eyes is focused on providing quality safety solutions that give businesses and employees the skill set needed to recognize and react to dangerous situations. On a daily basis, we hear yet another story of workplace violence or active shooter. Open Eyes offers a unique approach to keeping you and your businesses safe through site analysis, technology recommendations, policy review, and employee training. To set up a consultation for your business, call us today at 225-313-9713 or visit us at our website at OpenEyesSafetyTraining.com. We say keep open eyes because 10% of our population cause 90% of our problems. See them before they see you. Man, that song just takes me back. I'm sure it feels that way for everyone. Well, thanks to Detective Lang for joining us. Man, he is a great interviewee. So much knowledge and an ability to articulate that knowledge. And I know there are still people who are doubtful about the Simpson trial and who say he was framed or, or things like that. And it's like, you know, if there were so many, if, there, if, if the gray areas for that really, really did exist, I can understand the way that 
or how people could come to those conclusions. But there really aren't gray areas or, or not enough, in my opinion, that would make you believe that it's anything else. When you look at the evidence, and this is just somebody who sees it as, you know, I don't know, O.J. Simpson from Adam outside of having watched him on television play football and then after that watching him as an analyst doing sports talk on television but or talk, talk about football on television. So there's no animus or favor one way or the other. And the way that this was placed in context when it was going on, for those of us who are around and old enough to really understand some of what we were seeing, it w- is different. And then when you read a book like Evidence Dismissed and you you see some of these details, like I keep going, I know I, people are going to say, man, you keep harping on the blood, but it's like that's really a big deal when people say blood was planted and then you realize in the context of a timeline that people saw blood, photographs were taken of blood at his house before he had even given blood so I mean it's kind of a big thing to ignore and pay attention or pretend it wasn't there and so that's just me but I enjoy talking with Detective Lang hopefully you enjoyed it as well and go out and buy that book go out and buy that book and Detective Lang told me that there's a possibility he may be in Louisiana next year I'm hoping to be able to maybe sit down with him in person and do one of these if not uh, here then in the city he's going to be in I've, I've got access to some studios around the state. And so we can, we can sit down and do one of these, but I thank him for being on our show and thank you for being with us. This is the final show of 2018. I hope that you take some time and enjoy your family and your loved ones. If you have kids as I do, that you spend some time with them and count your blessings for them. Because for a lot of people, this has been a tough year. Many have had loved ones pass on this year some have gone through tough times and I think this holiday season we should keep in perspective what is truly 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 important and that is the love of family and friends and that is when real wealth is acquired when you are surrounded by love and I wish that for all of you who are listening to this show and I hope for you the best in this new coming year And again, thank you so much for being with us on this ride here at podcast225.com. God bless you all and enjoy this holiday season. Merry Christmas.